Good evening, everyone in Alberta, Canada, and beyond. It is Wednesday, December 13th, 2023, and I'm Carrie Lambert, and I welcome you to an online webinar, Evening of Solutions for a New Alberta, brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, also known as APP. APP's purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to protect their prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and sovereignty by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. Of course, we wouldn't be able to do this without your help. If you can, please share this webinar. We're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Rumble, as well as after the live. We're also on other video and audio sites like Apple, Spotify, Vimeo, etc. These webinars do take time and effort, and we're starting with sponsorships on our webinars. If you'd like to sponsor an upcoming webinar, you can get in contact with us at contact at albertaprosperityproject.com. Uh, which is also on the top of the uh, Alberta Prosperity Project page right here under contact. And with that, tonight's sponsor is our very own Whistle Stop Cafe. So we're using the little ticker at the bottom to advertise them and their logo, as well as showing a short video for them. So with that, I'm going to say thank you very much for sponsoring uh, with, uh, with us, Alberta Prosperity Project. And uh, let's see if we can jump right into this. Once again, Whistle Stop Cafe, thank you. Hey everybody, it's Chris here from Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. We just had our uh, Freedom Riders Saturday Family Fun Day, and as you can see, the place has been packed pretty much the whole time. Anyway, yeah, that's the whistle stop on a kind of a semi-crazy event weekend, and we're planning to do lots more of these. Uh, it's amazing, and it's something we've been missing over the last couple of years, so we're really excited to be part of this going forward. And there we go. So that's what a sponsorship video looks like. And of course, we've got the little ticker going at the bottom. And I believe we'll also show, there's the whistle stop. Actually, we'll put both of them up there, the whistle stop and APP to show that we're sponsoring. So if you want to get involved with that and uh, and basically be seen by anywhere between, I'm going to say, you know, a few thousand to 50,000 plus, uh, and uh, you're like-minded and you have a uh, service or goods that you want to showcase, or if you have another idea, maybe you got an event going on here and you want to show that, that would be great as well. So with that, I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, APP, of course. Um, APP memberships are one year for $20, two years for $30, three years for $40, or you can make a donation at albertaprosperityproject.com. We have a few things that are going on. I'm going to just leak a little bit. Uh, we actually have a Tucker Carlson event coming up here. And actually, I'm going to just quickly show that because we have our buddies over at uh, the um, uh, Western Standard uh, who uh, who are also doing this with us. Tucker Carlson uh, in Edmonton the evening of Wednesday, January 24th. And APP has, I believe, 100 tickets. 
if you are a member, you get a discounted price. Uh, I believe that price is going to be 175 might be 150 I'm not sure. But that email will be going out to members uh, very, very, very soon. Chris will probably end up talking a little bit more about that. And of course, we also have other events coming up. Uh, and you can go under the Alberta Prosperity Project page here, go under events. And we'll find out what's going on. We've also got uh, a pension, Alberta pension plan uh, discussion going out uh, in January and February. And uh, so there's going to be a lot of stuff coming up in the, in the next few months. So I hope that people will go to that site to take a look at that. Now, with enough of that rambling for from myself, uh, what I'm going to say is that tonight's episode is called The Road to Socialism is Paved with Good Intentions, also known as What is Socialism Really?, with Matthew Mitchell, who's a senior fellow in the Center for Economic Freedom at the Fraser Institute. We'll be discussing in particular what was the experience for people in Poland and Estonia who were forced to live under socialism, and how did their lives materially improve as soon as they were able to transition to a market economy. And of course, we'll also have APP's interim CEO, Chris Scott, who will be joining us as well. This is a live webinar, so we encourage you to ask questions and make comments throughout this presentation. Just put three question marks before your question so it's flagged and we can quickly view the questions. And with that, I will now bring on Chris and Matt. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening, Carrie and Matt. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing amazing. How about yourself? Great, thank you. Good, good. So, Matt... You are a fellow at the Fraser Institute. Why don't you uh, maybe just give a little bit of a spiel on uh, on what that is, what your background is, and then especially why we're going to be talking about socialism today. Absolutely. Uh, so the Fraser Institute is a, a leading um, national think tank in Canada, but also an international think tank. Um, one of our uh, sort of signature products uh, is the Economic Freedom of the World Report. Uh, so this uh, was a brainchild of the founder of the Institute, Mike Walker, back uh, in the 1980s. Uh, I think they were at a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society out uh, um, uh, shortly after 1984, and they were discussing Orwell's uh, 1984. And he was talking with Milton Friedman and, and Milton's wife, and he had this kind of crazy idea. Uh, he said, what if, what if we tried to measure freedom? Um, and I think Milton probably at first uh, really rejected the idea. And then as I understand it, um, Mike Walker convinced Rose Friedman that this was a worthy uh, pursuit. Uh, and so they held these series of conferences, had some uh, uh, several hundred economists, including Nobel laureates come together and they uh, developed this really successful measure of economic freedom. And so that's the project that I, I uh, head up. I'm a PhD economist trained at George Mason University. Um, now we, we uh, commission this report by uh, several eminent scholars, um, Jim Gortney, Bob Lawson, um, Ryan Murphy. Uh, and every year we rank 160 jurisdictions around the world based on how much freedom they permit uh, their citizens. And it's okay. been a really you know, extraordinarily successful project insofar as there have now been thousands of peer-reviewed academic studies that cite this and use it to help explain um, you know, in incredible differences in the human condition across time and across space based on uh, the degree of freedom people have. Yeah. Well, that would be interesting. Uh, can you tell us where Canada sits? 
<laughs> so, you know, Canada has always been uh, in the top uh, t 10 or 15. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, a I, any one year in the index, I think, is probably less informative than, you know, so, sort of where it's going. It's a relatively free, uh, economically free country. And I think that does explain the, the relative prosperity of Canada. Uh, you know, I, I'm from the United States and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I get frustrated with our lack of freedom here. And I'm sure you get frustrated with the lack of freedom in Canada as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is nice to remind ourselves every so often that, yeah, actually, uh, it's not so bad. <laughs> uh, so right now, Canada actually is right at, at number 10. Uh, okay. The United States is right at number five. So, uh, you know, okay. we're, we're, we're basically kind of where we've been for a while. <laughs> yeah. And, and who's and, number one? Uh, number one right now is Singapore. Oh, so okay. for, for as long as they've been doing the report, uh, number one was this uh, little jurisdiction known as Hong Kong. Uh, but in the last year, uh, it, it's fallen precipitously as mainland China has sort of clamped down on uh, Hong Kong's, they weren't intending to cr clamp down on their economic freedom as much as their um, you know, political freedom and, and civil rights, but yeah. it sort of bleeds over into that stuff as well. Okay. So this is a metric of economic freedom. It is. And we all, there's another uh, project that we do called the Human Freedom Index, which then mm. um, it takes economic freedom. And then we also add various um, indicators for personal freedom. Uh, so, you know, the civil, uh, the, the ability to, you know, the freedom of press, the freedom of association, those types of things, and okay. then combine them for a human freedom index as yeah, well. That's awesome. I can't. Yeah. So I, I can't help myself. Do you recall who's number two? Uh, let's see. Oh, oh, well, so this year Hong Kong went to number two because Singapore took its place. Okay. And who does number two work for? <laughs> I, I had to do it. I'm sorry. You knew that. <laughs> I, I don't know why I, I answered your question. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fantastic because uh, that's, you know, wh where else can people go to get that kind of information to compare how we're doing policy and government wise, if not for that, right? That's a, that's yeah. pretty, that's a pretty neat. Uh, yeah. Uh, pretty neat and thing. So, so this is the, uh, the FraserInstitute.org uh, website. And, uh, and of course there's, there's a bunch of different reports on, on that. I believe the one that we're going to be talking about today is a different website and it is this one, the realities of socialism, right? Yeah, so this is a project we've uh, we, we launched this year, uh, and you know part of this is inspired just by the the half life of um, historical memory. You know, some of us are old enough to remember being around TV sets and watching the Berlin Wall fall, uh, yeah. but that's you know now been over thirty years, uh, and wow. so uh, there's now uh, you know a majority of Canadians, a majority of uh, Americans are just not old enough to have any kind of a working memory of what That's actual true. socialism was like. That's and at right. the same time, uh, you know, about half of uh, Canadians and half of Americans, uh, especially as you go into younger generations, uh, think that socialism would be a better system than uh, what we have today. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the evidence uh, just the historical record could not uh, <laughs> dispute that any more uh, uh, clearly. Yeah, and 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 just again for our viewers, we we have viewers that that are in Alberta, that are in Canada, that are in the U.S. However, our our stretch goes all over the world, believe it or not. So I think we we need to kind of just at least talk about what is the difference between uh, socialism, what's the difference between uh, capitalism, and again communism, because. 
Socialism and communi communism here in Canada, depending on if you go on X or Twitter and, and you, you see who's actually banging on the keyboard, they use those terms interchangeably. And I think that's that kind of gets us into a bit of hot water because people just think that uh, you know, if you're talking, if you're a socialist, you're just, uh, you're, we're going down a, a bad road. And I think the, again, the, the reason why we called it, uh, you know, uh, socialism is a, is a road paved with good intentions is because it, it, in its fundamental form, it is right. And I, and I beg people to, to basically say, no, it's not going to work at all. But if you actually look at it, all we're trying to do is put the power back to, the people, right? And uh, and especially with uh, the Alberta Prosperity Project, uh, we basically want to be able to educate people so that they're basically their their own uh, makers of their own destiny, their own prosperity. And and versus if you're a, a capitalist, you might be thinking, well, that's the best way to go. But the issue is, is well, there's always going to be a boss, and that boss is always going to be the one that's uh, that's making the money. So maybe we should have a quick discussion about those so that we're all in the same. Uh, same level playing field for terms. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the the original sort of classic definition of socialism comes, you know, from the socialists themselves. Uh, Marx and Engels probably uh, most prominently. Um, they had uh, uh, a beautiful way with the human language or the English language. Actually, you know, they they spoke they they could write uh, beautifully, uh, but and at times they could be quite succinct. Uh, so, uh, in the 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 uh, Communist Manifesto, they put it very simply. They said the theory of communism can be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. Um, mm -hmm. And so the basic idea, you know, the classic definition of socialism is that uh, private property is abolished. All property is owned in collective um, as a group, you know, by the state and the yeah. state owns and operates all business. Uh, mm -hmm. So the means of production is in the hands of the state. Now, mm -hmm. uh, Marx, socialism had been around for hundreds of years by the time Marx got on the scene. Uh, his contribution was to uh, describe what he called and his followers called scientific socialism. And they mm -hmm. were trying to kind of differentiate this from the previous socialists whom they called uh, utopian socialists. Okay. Um, it wasn't all that scientific in our modern sense. In many ways, actually, the utopians were more scientific in that they actually uh, tested it. You know, the utopian socialists actually tried these little communes um, to see if to see if they could and tweaked it and were willing to to experiment. Marx, uh, his version of socialism, the reason he he said it was scientific is because he claimed to have understood really the progression of history. He under he he claimed to understand exactly all the stages of human society, and he claimed to understand what was going to come in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, you know, he he believed that after feudalism you, comes capitalism, yeah, and after capitalism comes socialism. And you have to have capitalism before socialism, according to Marx, because capitalism builds up all this prosperity. And Marx like uh, wax poetic about how uh, uh, productive capitalism w could be. Yeah. You know, he has this quote about how in you know scarce a hundred years the bourgeoisie has created you know more wealth than has ever existed ever before. So he says you you got to have capitalism, and then you you have to have so socialism where it's a revolt of yeah. the oppressed workers against the capitalists because they believe yeah. that they are being exploited. And then communism is actually yeah. this future stage in which 
it's sort of a utopian dream in which the the state actually withers away mm-hmm. um and you're just left you don't have to have all this power of coercion you don't have to have a kgb anymore or any of that stuff uh you just have people working in harmony and and um you know, for, for the good of, of the community. So yeah. uh, the, the communists themselves actually use the term socialism and communism interchangeably. But if you're kind of following closely what they're saying, uh, communism is really something that was, is to be dreamed, is to be realized in the future. They were living in a socialist state. Uh, that's what they talked about at, at the time. Okay. Yeah. A, a utopian future where personal accountability and, fr- and freedom of thought is unnecessary because Soap does all of it for you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was this sort of idea that humans would become a better, we'd, there, there would be a, we'd be better people uh, once we were all living in the socialist uh, or communist utopia. They called it the, uh, the, the Soviet man or the socialist man, the socialist woman. Um, and there would be, uh, people would be less greedy, um, mm-hmm. less avaricious, uh, more honest. Uh, so, you know, they, they paint a picture of a beautiful, a beautiful life. Uh, you know, basically the, this uh, phrase from um, uh, Engels sticks in my head. It's uh, f- free of all the toil they can uh, as- ascend to the kingdom of, of uh, humanity. Uh, hmm. So it's just, the, you know, this idea that once you don't, once we've taken care of the problem of supplying the day-to-day goods, uh, everything's going to work out, you know, really, really well. <laughs> Unfortunately, people forget that there always has to be somebody to do the toiling. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, there was a there was a hell of a lot of toiling uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind uh, is that we don't have to, we, we, you know, Marx's idea of scientific socialism was never tested. There was no scientific method to it. But from mm-hmm. the standpoint of 2023, we can look back and see it, it, an experiment really was run. Yeah. One third of the globe was uh, put under the yoke of socialism for you know differing periods of time, but you know five decades in the case of Poland, um, seven decades in the case of uh, the the Soviet Union, uh, many, many decades in Southeast Asia. So we know we know the results of this experiment and we can say exactly uh, how it turned out. Yeah, there is no guessing there. So uh, our friend Murray Graham, he made a, uh, brings up a good point. So in Alberta, we have uh, a group called Hutterites. They live mm-hmm. in commun- uh, colonies, almost like a, a commune. They take care of themselves. And then when their, their colony gets uh, to a certain size, they branch off and start another colony. And in this case, it's a, it's, well, I mean, it is a form of, I guess you would say it's a form of communism, but it works because it's not just based on government policy or a government ideology. It's based on something higher than themselves, which is their God and their religion, right? So the, you know, that's a, a bishop who is leading the colonies based on biblical values which is much, much different than a secular society trying to do the same thing based on, you know, man's values. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Um, and, you know, the the utopian socialists that I was talking about earlier that had these experiments in the 19th century in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere, um, a lot of them were, were religiously um, motivated. I, I think I would point out one other real key 
uh, uh, aspect that, that differentiates the, those types of experiments from the socialist experiment is uh, the ability to exit. So, yes. um, you know, anybody who wants to be a part of a commune can can join right now. There's there's nothing stopping them. Um, and true. arguably, you know, most households, you know, small little households are run sort of like a little socialist state. You know, there's mm -hmm. uh, uh, parents who kind of make the rules and the kids kind of have to follow. Um, and, you know, the kids have rights, but they don't have as many rights as adults. Right. Um, mm -hmm. That's very, very different, though, from trying to govern a, a society of a million people or 30 million people, and you're not allowed to leave. Uh, you, you have, you, you literally have no right of exit. Um, not only could you not exit the country, but the Soviet Union had this really elaborate, vast system of internal passports, where you had a document that uh, you needed this document to do anything from go to the post office and pick up mail to um, uh, to get married, uh, even to die. You couldn't die without a, without this internal passport. You couldn't legally die. Um, could, could, could you go to a restaurant? Um, so you could go to, uh, you, you could, you had certain rights of consumption. You could go to yeah. restaurants. You couldn't go and buy a house. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the house, the experiment in communal housing is really, uh, just extraordinarily bizarre. Um, hmm. so you could buy little things, but not big things. Um, but you, importantly, you couldn't leave your community. If you yeah. were a farmer, you couldn't go to the, the city and be and work in the city or vice versa. They needed you and they where where you were. That's what they wanted you. <laughs> so so did did you want to jump into the uh, into the website and the discussion on what? Yeah, uh, sure, sure. So, so yeah, if you go to the website, um, yeah. you know, you can uh, click around. We've got uh, four studies up uh, on uh, Poland, Sweden, Denmark, um, yeah. and Estonia, and we'll soon be releasing Singapore. Uh, I'm sure astute uh, listeners are saying are scratching their heads and saying, "Wait, some of these are not communist or socialist countries," and that's absolutely mm -hmm. right. Uh, part of the reason we have uh, Sweden and Denmark on there is that they are often talked about in uh, North America as if they are socialist countries. Uh, they are yeah. not. Uh, so we talked about the Economic Freedom of the World Index uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, Sweden and Denmark are among some of the most economically free countries in the world, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, they have really? an exception to that. They have very large uh, government states or, or government sectors um, so they tax a lot and they spend a lot, and we'll, though they do it a little bit differently than we do uh, in North America. Uh, mm -hmm. But other dimensions of economic freedom, interestingly enough, they, they beat Canada and the United States. So it's easier to start a business. There are fewer regulations, um, okay. better protection of persons and their property. They have a better record on uh, free trade. Um, and a better record on inflation uh, in than the United States and Canada. So they are, are really actually uh, quite economically free uh, places. The exception is uh, they have large uh, welfare states. So the state isn't trying to own and control businesses, but it does have a pretty big safety net. Now, uh, one thing that's interesting about the safety net, though, is it's not really funded the way uh, we in the United States or, or uh, in, in Canada fund our safety nets. Um, their safety net is, their, their primary taxes are income and uh, sales taxes. And they're, uh, they're relatively high rates, but the top rate kicks in at a really low level. So mm -hmm. it's basically something that just about everybody pays for. 
So uh, it's a it's a quite different system yeah. um, than, than we have. Uh, so anyway, but Poland and, and Estonia are the books that uh, I've recently been um, authoring. Uh, the full we've we've got a pre-release of Estonia up on the website now. Uh, tomorrow, uh, the full uh, book will be available. And uh, if you scroll down, you can see we've got uh, a lot of shareable infographics. We've got podcasts. Um, we've, we're, we've got videos. Uh, and we've got more videos coming. Uh, we also have uh, a poll in which we um, asked um, people in the United States, Canada, uh, Great Britain, and Australia what they uh, their perceptions of socialism, what they believe socialism to be, whether they favor socialism, uh, mm -hmm. sort of to contextualize it. So um, anyway, uh, I, I invite your listeners to please check it out. Uh, let us know what you think about it and uh, share it with your friends and family yeah. and uh, anybody who is too young to remember the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, again, so the fall of the Berlin Wall was communism versus socialism, wasn't it? So, so uh, I mean, the Berlin Wall, so this is, at this point, we're talking 1989. Uh, so uh, this was one of the, East Germany was one of the many uh, puppet states of the, of the Soviet uh, empire. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, at this point, it's really, it's social, communism was this dream that we might eventually have, have communism, but this was really, the reality was uh, socialism versus capitalism. And um, a lot East and West Germany after the war had lived, uh, you know, side by side for a little while. Um, and the, the socialists, their dream really was to outproduce the capitalists. So this is really important. Uh, a lot of people on the left today are sort of, um, they they are self-described anti-materialists. Their mm -hmm. their goal is to uh, you know live in a society where we don't care about what we produce or what we have. Um, Except the, for the their original, eyeball. yeah, exactly. Uh, the original socialists, though, they are not like that. Uh, they uh, uh, while they did kind of believe that you could that capitalism maybe led to um, commodification of relationships and things like that. Um, or maybe too much materialism, they weren't exactly anti-materialist. Marx himself, you know, believed that socialism would just outproduce capitalism. Uh, and so, you know, you know, you probably know the famous example of Khrushchev uh, taking his shoe off and beating it on the desk at the uh, United Nations. And he said, we will bury you. That actually was not a militaristic threat. That was an empirical claim that socialism was going to outproduce capitalism. He believed that they had that that by organizing things through the state, having the government control the means of production, getting rid of all this, they thought it was wasteful to have uh, you know multiple firms competing um, and for the uh, business of a of a consumer. Uh, that they thought that was redundant. Um, he thought by having everybody work with one plan, you know, one set of regulations, they could outproduce the capitalists. Um, so, but early on uh, in Germany, uh, that was clearly not the case. And the uh, East Germans kept going to the West. And so the, uh, the communist leaders there built a wall overnight and it lasted um, I, I think some 30 years. Uh, amazingly, now the wall, the, the Berlin Wall has been down uh, for longer than it was ever up. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, people seem to have forgotten the, the you know, major lessons of it. Yeah. 
Did we want to talk about uh, what you what you've researched on uh, Poland and Estonia? Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about yeah. it. Okay, yeah. so um, let, let's maybe begin uh, with with uh, Poland. I think. Um, okay. So, you know, the important uh, part uh, here is what happened in um, Moscow in uh, August twenty uh, third. 1939. Uh, so what happened on that date is um, the uh, German leader uh, uh, von Ribbentrop, he was the head, uh, he was basically the, the German foreign minister, was welcomed in Moscow um, by uh, the Soviets. Um, he, when he landed, there were six giant swastikas uh, flying in the, uh, the Soviet capital. Uh, interestingly enough, they had been recently taken from uh, a communist movie studio where they had just weeks before been used as uh, props in an anti-German, uh, anti-Nazi uh, propaganda. Now wow. they were, the, the, uh, the Soviets were using them to welcome uh, von Ribbentrop. Um, he's rushed to the Kremlin where he meets actually with Stalin himself. Um, and they sign uh, the uh, infamous Nazi-Soviet pact. Um, mm -hmm. And so what the pact did is it did two things. One was publicly it committed the, the Germans and the Soviets to non-aggression. But the really important thing is what it did secretly. So it had uh, secret protocols that divided up uh, Europe. And it said the, the Germans get uh, West Poland, the uh, Soviets get East Poland, the Soviets get the Baltic states, uh, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. They get all of the other uh, you know, states that we now know as uh, being a part of the, uh, the Soviet sphere. Uh, so this part was secret. Nobody was supposed to know about it. Uh, afterwards, Stalin uh, toasts to Hitler's health. Uh, they sign the pact and um, very soon afterwards, they begin operating the plan. Uh, and so uh, within the month, um, the so this was August and uh, by, of 1939, by September 1939, the uh, Germans invade Poland from the west, the Soviets invade Poland from the east. Uh, they meet up, they have a joint Soviet and um, uh, German uh, parade in uh, Brest-Litovsk, um, and they celebrate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people then, of course, you know, may be thinking or may remember, uh, well, wait, wasn't, wasn't the Soviet Union eventually on the side of the Allies? And that's true, they were, um, because uh, within um, uh, two years, uh, the Germans then turned on their erstwhile allies. And in 1941, the Germans invade uh, the Soviet Union. And so, and they actually take over all of Poland, all of Estonia, and then the, the Soviets have to sweep through and, and kick them out. Uh, so these, these uh, the people in Poland and the people in the Baltic states are often likened uh, to sort of being between, you know, two tigers. Uh, they're just constantly being invaded. And this is, uh, you know, historically true, actually, for a long time. You know, in Estonia, they, they'd been for thousands of years invaded by the Danes and the, and the Swedes and the Germans and the Poles and everybody. Um, but, you know, during World War II, they would 
just go through this, you know, massive uh, um, sweep from one side to the other, the Germans sweeping through and then later the, the Soviets sweep, sweeping through. When everything settles, the Soviets are in control of both mm -hmm. uh, the Baltic states and Poland. And so for the next five decades, they impose their rule. In Poland, they actually, uh, in Poland, they set up a, a, um, a puppet government. Um, they appoint, you know, the, all the top people in the government, uh, especially in the military, are actually Russian, not not Polish. Um, eventually, they get Polish uh, leaders, but they need to be very loyal to uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and in Estonia, they're actually completely annexed into the Soviet Union. So Estonia is uh, taken into the Soviet Union as a as a uh, a vassal state, essentially, they're they're made a like a province of the of the Soviet Union or like the state mm -hmm. a state of the Soviet Union. Um, so they're in control for for uh, five decades, you know, in both cases. Um, and so uh, the experiment starts to play out. And so now we can kind of test and we can see, okay, well, what is the claim um, that Marx made that and that Khrushchev made that socialism was going to outproduce the capitalists. We yeah. can see it's just not true. So, you know, in the case of Estonia, we've got this nice comparison because um, the uh, right after they invade um, uh, Poland, they moved on, on. They moved on Estonia, um, put 160,000 troops at the border to, to Estonia's 16,000 troops, and they basically forced them to come into their country. Mm -hmm. um, they also then move on Finland, and in the famous uh, winter war, the Finns uh, put on skis and put and uh, um, pick up guns, and they chase the Soviets out. Actually, mm -hmm. um, the Soviets uh, end up. Uh, suing for peace, they basically decide it's it's not worth their fight. Uh, they do get to get uh, take I think something like nine percent of of Finland's uh, land, including a lot of the uh, industrialized property. And um, uh, the 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 Finns have to write checks to the to the Soviet Union for several years. Uh, also ridiculous. Uh, and the the Finnish president actually says uh, when he signs this agreement with the Soviets, he says, um, you know, may the hand that signs this treaty wither and die. He was yeah. just so ashamed of himself for for signing this this treaty, but it it ended up giving them freedom. Uh, you know, even though they had to write, had to give away nine percent of their 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 country and write checks to the Soviets, uh, it, they gained their freedom. Now, interestingly enough, this uh, president, uh, what do you suppose happened to his hand? Uh, within within months, it was paralyzed. <laughs> Come on, uh, like ridiculous, but it's actually true. <laughs> uh, so one of those crazy facts of history. So anyway. Um, the the Finns and the and the Estonians, you know, they're right across the Gulf of Finland from one another. Uh, they share this this culture, this geography, this history, uh, the 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 Finno um, uh, Ugric uh, language, um, and so there's a lot a lot of ways that we can see the comparison. Now, before the Soviets took over, the Estonians were were wealthier than the Finns. They earned about 84 percent more. Mm -hmm. uh, we then fast forward to the end of the, the uh, socialist regime, and by the early 1990s, the uh, Estonians are earning 20% of what the Finns are earning. Um, so, you know, in terms of material prosperity, the Finns were just far, far ahead. Now, okay, it's not all about dollars and cents. You know, we want to know what are other, uh, you know, that's not the only thing that matters in life. Yeah. Well, it turns out the uh, the Finns 
were living 10 years longer than the Estonians. Uh, mm. It turns out the uh, Estonian um, death rate, infant mortality rate, was three times as high as the Finnish uh, infant mortality rate. It turns out that the, uh, in order to work for basic necessities and goods, uh, the Finns had, um, the Estonians had to work, you know, five, six times as long as uh, their neighbors to the north in, in Finland just to earn, you know, basic necessities. And you see the same thing with, uh, with Poland as well, uh, you know, lower incomes, shorter lifespan, uh, higher infant mortality rate. Um, and then the interesting thing is it's not just, you know, corroded their uh, ability to produce. Um, it also had this uh, corrosive effect on the culture. And this happened really in both countries. And there's uh, Estonians and Poles will talk about this. So, you know, one of the things that happens is if you live in a society where you can't get stuff, you can't go to the grocery store and buy meat because it's not there. Yeah. Then you have to rely on a system called blot, as was, uh, was the uh, Russian word for it. But it's basically corruption. So the only way you can get, you know, the, the necessities of life is, and you you don't have to have money. You have to have connections. Mm. Um, and so then it gets this weird system where you have, if you're high up in the in the communist party. Or you're a you know a manager at a store. You've got access to goods and services that normal poles, no normal Estonians don't have, yeah. um, and you're able to use this. This is actually part of the reason why they were. It was such a shortage economy. As managers figured out that by purposely throttling um, the uh, the goods and services, purposely making sure that they weren't on the shelves, yeah. they could then sell them in the black market. That's right. Um, and so some of it, and, and the Soviets, the, the, the socialist leaders actually tolerated this in part because with a, a relatively flat compensation system, there was no way to get the, the people to want to be in those, those positions where they're, um, you know, where you're rewarding top managers. So they, they looked the other way to allow these managers to obtain blot. Uh, you know, money, Ill illegal bribes from the black market for selling this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, eventually, they, the the communists also just had overt uh, privileges for the for the elite. So yeah. if you were in the top of the party, not only could you accept bribes, but you had um, yeah, you had a, your own stores that you could go and shop and buy Western goods that were actually there, unlike uh, you know the, the rest of the population. You had your own health plan. Uh, you had your own um, uh, vacation plan. You could hunt in your own uh, exclusive hunting resorts uh, or relax. Are you, are you describing the European Union? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they have those things. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, the EU members of Parliament. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's the kind of corruption you do see, you know, uh, in systems all throughout the world. Um, but here it was in this supposedly egalitarian state. So how does it go from, you know, a socialist dream where everyone's taken care of and treated uh, equally and you have an equality of outcome to a brutally tyrannical regime where, you know, the peasants are constantly wanting and the elite are you know getting fat off the fruits of their labor how, how does that happen 
So, uh, you know, one way to answer that is it happens fast. Uh, so it, it did in both countries, it happened really quick. Uh, you know, what we identify is there's essentially three, you know, kind of three spheres of problems that they dealt with. Uh, one, I think you can uh, probably understand uh, pretty easily or anybody can, can appreciate is the incentive problem. So, you know, think about the incentive of a collective farm. So they have this dream. Uh, the Poles, thankfully, didn't have uh, farms collectivized, but the Estonians did. So Stalin had this dream of uh, turning agriculture into this great, you know, state-run industrialized system. And his way to get there was through collective farms. And so the idea here is you've got maybe uh, 300 farmers in a community and you all are forced to, forced to come together and share everything. So mm -hmm. you even have to share the, uh, you know, the property, the, the productive property, like the tractor and the, um, the horse and the cows. And, and the socialists have different experiments over time. Eventually they tried to, they tried semi-privatizing that, but that, still didn't work. Um, so they have, uh, so you share everything, you share this, uh, the proper, the productive property, but then you also have to share, you know, what it produces. Well, if yeah. you're a farmer, you know, think about it. If you're, are you going to work till from sun up to sundown? Uh, yeah. Are you going to maintain the tractor, maintain the, the make sure that the cattle uh, are, uh, you know, well-fed and are in good shape uh, and work extra hard to increase the productivity just so you can share it with 299 other farmers. Yeah, no. and that, that you, you remove the reward portion yeah. of it. You, you remove right. the carrot. So in absence of a reward or the carrot, out comes the stick. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So that that comes to the next problem is the control problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, uh, you know, the, the world's worst famines occurred in the 20th century and they occurred in communist countries. Uh, so 7 million people died in the Ukrainian uh, famine. Um, and it was entirely man-made. And, you know, it's when you start to read about a famine, you know, you can hear the word famine and it sounds, oh, that sounds pretty awful. It's absolutely horrific. You know, humans eating humans, um, killing members of their families, uh, eating dirt. It's absolute, it's, it's humanity at its absolute worst. And it was entirely avoidable because it was Stalin's, um, you know, dream to outproduce the capitalists, and he thought it would work. Um, so yeah, it's it's disgusting. So, so yeah, you, that's the incentive problem, and then you have the control problem. Out comes the stick. So you know, if you look at, at Estonia, um, they asked, they tried for about a decade to get the Estonians to join collective farms, and the Estonians didn't want to do it. Um, and they kind of tried everything that they could think of. They cajoled them. They tried to, you know, use slogans. Um, they vilified anybody who was remotely successful. They had a, they, they made up a class. They called them kulaks. Um, it was an old Russian term for basically a farmer who probably got what he got for, from, by being conniving or, or thieving somehow. And they, and Didn't they, they said the any, same thing in, in Ukraine. Yes, they, had they did. a class absolutely. made up for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and Stalin, you know, made this um, statement that we're going to liquidate the kulaks as a class. Now, the kulaks are not they aren't a class. They're not an ethnic group. They're nothing. They're, they're, there's nothing cohesive about it. But they empowered three people, the local uh, Communist Party leader, 
Um, oh, now that's interesting. Look, my thumb goes up and it yeah, that. Up. Yeah. okay that's where that comes from that's crazy uh so <laughs> they empower you know these three local party officials essentially yeah you can't do it i can do it though oh, weird maybe i can oh there, there it goes. Goes. interesting <laughs> the uh, so they empower these local party officials to determine you know who's a kulak and mm -hmm. um the, the we we have quotes from the party officials themselves that say we just we just make it up we can we can designate anybody as a kulak we want um, so they vilify them and uh, then they round them up and they send them to Siberia. So what happened was, uh, you know, all of these these tricks to try to get the Estonians to join collective farms just didn't work. And so uh, one night um, in uh, 1949, the, they uh, drove in a bunch of American made Studebaker trucks and they just started rounding up people. And they put them on these trucks and they sent them east. Uh, when all was said and done, it was about, um, I think it was 20,000. Um, it was about 14 to 18% of the, the uh, farming population. Um, it's a big number. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a big number. They uh, separate uh, the men from the, the women and children. Uh, the, the women and children were sent to um, Siberia where they're basically just kind of on their own uh, in exile. Uh, and so they don't, th this was a very cheap system where you don't have to have prison guards or anything. You just send them to this wasteland and they have to try to figure out how they're going to survive. Wow. Um, and so they survived by digging holes in the ground and um, eating um, grass. Uh, and many of them did not survive. Uh, uh, about 50% of the women were dead within a, in a few years. Um, and then they sent the men uh, to uh, prison uh, labor camps. So about 16 to 18% of all labor in the Soviet Union was uh, slave labor. Uh, they, that was, again, part of why they thought they were going to be so productive is we're, we're just going to force people to be productive. Mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, all, some of them are these silly projects, you know, the, the White Sea Canal which uh, predated the invasion of Estonia, but this was this uh, sort of dream project of uh, this building the super long canal. Uh, about, I think 25,000 uh, people died um, in building it. Uh, and by the time it was done, it was useless. It was only three meters uh, deep. They were digging, you know, with their hands and with shovels, uh, you know, absolutely ridiculous. So you've got the incentive problem and the control problem. And then finally, there's a, a problem with knowledge, which is uh, the price system harnesses information and helps people, co plans coordinate in a very subtle way that we don't always appreciate. Um, and so without, you know, actual consumers being able to, um, uh, you know, produce, uh, or being able to make choices about what they want to buy, uh, the state didn't really know what people wanted. Uh, mm -hmm. So it had no trouble making, um, you know, fancy space uh, exploration, uh, missiles and uh, military right. e equipment. Yeah. But, uh, you, you know, there's, there's uh, women who, who live through the time will say they couldn't find in any female sanitary products anywhere. That was just not a priority for the, the leaders. Um, and that's kind of like sort of the best example I can give if you're trying to understand what is the knowledge problem. It's just the problem that if you're, 
if you don't actually aren't making something that you sell to a willing customer that chooses to buy it or chooses not to buy it, you have no idea how to make anything that anybody wants. And so you're left with a bunch of stuff that nobody wants. Can I just uh, divert this just a little bit from yeah. Europe and move over to South America? Like we recently saw a collapse of a, uh, a first world country of Venezuela. And it seems like, you know, there was a lot of the same kind of policy decisions made down there, which resulted in people burning money in the streets and eating zoo animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of things did we see there? And, and with all the history we have of these social experiments going on and failing, what in the world happened in a place like Venezuela that was one of the wealthiest places ever, abundant resources, grow food all year long, to uh, end up eating zoo animals. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's really extraordinary how often you see this played out over and over and over again. Um, you know, it's a, it's to me, it's just a, a relatively simple lesson, which is that freedom works. You grant people economic freedom to start their own businesses, to run their own lives. Not only is that, you know, beneficial from a philosophical perspective, because you deserve to be able to, to run your own affairs just as, as much as I do, but it turns out uh, it's an extraordinarily powerful, economically productive system to allow people to start and run their own businesses and do, and do what they want. Um, now, the problem that you have, I think, is that on the one hand, people are lured into this, uh, you know, uh, dream of socialism and equality, uh, and the um, especially in the hands of a demagogue, uh, that could be very powerful, uh, mm -hmm. especially if they're willing to scapegoat, you know, the the rich or the capitalists or the kulaks or whatever, uh, for any problem that they're experiencing. Uh, but then you also do have a problem that um, people be there are people who benefit from a socialist system. That's that's yeah. <laughs> certainly true. Uh, if you happen to be in the top, you know, in the party leadership, that's a great spot to be in, at least for a little while, uh, because of all those privileges that we talked about and because of the ability to control all those resources. So it's it's really difficult to get out of that trap once you're in it. Would it be? Would it be uh, realistic to say that socialism is a very seductive idea? Like it preys on people's desire to have either more than they have or maybe mm -hmm. uh, more comforts than they already have? Absolutely. I think so. And especially if you look at sort of the claims uh, that socialists make, uh, you know, they, 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 they painted a picture of capitalism with great inequality, political suppression, stagnation. Uh, they said the capitalists robbed the soil, they robbed the labor, uh, that capitalism leads to commodification and alienation and worker revolt, uh, recurring crises. Uh, now the fascinating thing, and I'm not the first to make this observation, but the fascinating thing is every single one of those descriptions that, I'm, that I just uh, gave applied to the socialist countries the countries that actually tried socialism, um, and Marx was a hundred percent accurate. If you just replace the words capitalism with socialism, uh, the in by the early 1980s, uh, there was really 
not too many true believers uh, in the Soviet Union, in Poland, in Estonia, because the the obvious contradiction in the system, the obvious lies uh, were just so apparent. And mm -hmm. in, in uh, much, much of Eastern Europe, it was young people who really led the revolt against uh, socialism, and that's how the they, that's how the system fell. Well, and actually, I was I was just going to chime in and say, you know, what's happening now, and it, and it may be slightly different in the U.S., but I think it's probably very, very the same. We've got a generation of uh, a younger generation that's gone through their their schooling, gone through their university. They're now coming out. They it's difficult to find a job. It's difficult to uh, afford housing. They've got all these issues that they can point down to. Well, it's because of all the billionaires of capitalism, and so romantically, you're looking at socialism for this coming out. They're looking at it and saying this will help solve everything because we're now going to redistribute the wealth. Everyone's going to be happy. Everyone will have a, a universal basic income. Everyone will have a house. And everyone can just go on living their life all great. However, as you've just said, in the history is definitely going to repeat itself if we go down that that path. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's absolutely right. And part of the problem, you know, in the West is that we have very entangled systems. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't have free enterprise in Canada or the United States. We have you know mixed economies where uh, you have quite free sectors. Uh, retail trade is quite free. People are, by the way, pretty happy with retail trade, I'd say. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, gro uh, grocery stores are, are relatively free. Um, but then you have other system, you know, other sectors of the economy where the state is highly involved, energy, healthcare. Yeah, um, right. I would point out that these are the parts of the, the system that people are least happy with, by the mm -hmm. way. Yeah, interesting. So I, I just got to point this out. If anybody watching has not read the book, 1984 by George Orwell. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you don't have time to read the book, watch the movie. It's a little bit dry and it's kind of tough to watch the way it's filmed. But I can't think of a better uh, description of a socialist utopian or dystopian Dystopia. future than that book. I mean, in the book, the, the state, it's called uh, Ingsoc, which stands for English Socialism basically tells people that everything is grand and everything is great and they believe it even though they're living in this barren wasteland and they don't have enough of anything uh, they're not allowed to think for themselves mm -hmm. the media controls everything and the ministry of truth tells them what to think but mm -hmm. they also tell them that this is perfect and everything is great and it's working excellent while the world's crumbling around them and we see this today i mean the people mm -hmm. in venezuela i bet you there was people like us watching these things occur around them that were aware that things were crumbling while the state was telling them how great everything was yeah. and how great yeah. everything was yeah. going to be like that's what's really mind-blowing here and it comes back to this this human nature trait that we all have which is we want to believe those things which confirm our own biases and keep us in our comfort zone yeah. so if somebody wants to believe that socialism is the answer they're going to see that it's the answer regardless of the uh, zebras yeah. on the barbecue in their backyard. Yeah, no, that's true. Now, this and, is a problem. And, and Orwell, one of the, um, you know, fra party phrases that appears a, a couple of times in that book is uh, who controls the past controls yes. the future. 
That's right. And who controls the present controls the past. And the, the point here there is if you can rework history, if you can control how people think about history, then you you have a hold on on today and you have a hold on tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting about uh, Estonia is that they really started to take control of their destiny once they started taking control of their history. So um, if you'll permit me here a, a yes. minute to talk yeah, about the, about the Estonian uh, you know, post-socialism. So what happened was you know, Gorbachev comes on the scene, 1985. There's a, a series of uh, his predecessors had all been uh, quite old and had died in office. Um, you know, Reagan is saying, uh, I can't, I can't get to know any of these guys because they keep dying uh, <laughs> before, right as soon as I meet them. That's right. That's so, right. So Gorbachev is the first uh, post-communist uh, revolution leader, and he is a different guy. He's, uh, he, he, there's two things that he, that he wants to do. He talks about reform, uh, perestroika, he called it, and um, um, glasnost. Uh, which is uh, openness. Mm -hmm. Perestroika amounts to basically nothing. He's not really willing to, to reform the system in any meaningful way. It was nothing more meaningful than anybody before him. But he was willing to be open about the past, uh, more open than anybody else. Um, and he actually was willing to let uh, Poland and the other uh, uh, satellite states, East Germany, go. He was not willing to let Estonia and the other Baltic states go. Um, he was still referring to it uh, to their annexation as a marriage. Um, the Estonians believed it was a rape, not a marriage. It was mm -hmm. not voluntary. Yeah. Um, and so the while uh, the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, it's not until 1991 that uh, Estonia gains some freedom. So let, let's talk a little bit about that because it's kind of a cool story. So mm -hmm. one of the things that they that they do is um, they start relying on their culture. And, and Estonia has a very unique culture. They have been, uh, a big part of it is, is singing. So for thousands of years, the Estonians have been getting together in forests and singing these ancient songs uh, in like call and response fashion. Um, and so they would have these, these uh, song festivals. And the Soviets could never actually stop the song festivals. They just tried to steer them in their direction. So they would allow them to get together and have these song festivals where they'd all get together and sing love songs to Stalin and Lenin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when that was done, this, the Estonians would start singing their own traditional songs in their own tongue. The, the Soviet bands would try to drown them out uh, and they just could never do it because you get 20, 30,000 people together and they're singing and there's no way to stop that. Yeah. Um, and it was also kind of a, uh, uh, you know, led by young people too. So there were, there were new, some of these are thousand year old songs, but some of them are also these, you know, new rock uh, songs from the 1980s that they're singing. Uh, so they start openly talking about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. That was really, they, they, you know, you mentioned Orwell, they started controlling the past, the narrative yeah. on the past. And one, another remarkable thing that they did, they organized with the um, uh, people in uh, Latvia and Lithuania, they organized what's called the Baltic Way. So on the anniversary of the infamous uh, Soviet Nazi pact, two million people, uh, uh, thank you, Chris, <laughs> two million people join hands in a, 560 mile 
or kilometer stretch of humanity wow. going across three countries. Wow. And all they're doing is they're just standing and they're holding hands and they're doing it on the day of the, the Soviet Nazi pact that which at that point, they still were denying that there was any secret pact. They had never made a pact, any secret pact with the, with the uh, Nazis. Um, and Gorbachev, you know, for all his openness, was dismissive of this. He said they're just they're just trying to, uh, um, you know, they're basically just hooligans, um, mm -hmm. and you know, don't, don't give them any any heed. But uh, the Estonians and the Latvians and the Lithuanians were were smart about this. They made sure that there were Western cameras. They even uh, hired uh, a helicopter uh, and and had uh, photos taken of all of this. Uh, so the, the world knew about it. And within months, the Soviets had to finally admit that the Soviet um, Nazi pact had existed. And that was key because that basically showed that it was illegally annexed. Uh, you know, Canada and the United States never had recognized their annexation as a legal um, as, as legal. And this mm -hmm. was sort of now saying, yeah, we're, we're admitting that it's not legal e either. Um, so ultimately what happened is uh, when there was a failed coup against Gorbachev, the hardliners tried to uh, depose him. Uh, you may remember Boris uh, Yeltsin, uh, who was the head of Russia at the time, mm -hmm. uh, denounced the, the, the coup leaders. And in the um, sort of uh, chaos of all this, the Estonians themselves declared uh, their independence. Uh, there were tanks sent to Estonia. Um, they surrounded the TV tower in um, Tallinn in Estonia. There were four men in the top of the tower um, and the tanks, uh, were they were getting ready to break down the door. Uh, one of these uh, policemen in the top of the tower, is, he's a sort of a local hero. He threatened to uh, pull the Freon uh, fi uh, fire extinguishing system in this TV tower and kill everybody in the tower, including himself. Hmm. The Soviets decided, okay, well, let's let's talk about this a little bit more. And so the the leaders decide what to do for another ten hours before they break. They want to break down the door. And in mm -hmm. the meantime, the coup falls apart in um, uh, the in Moscow, and um, uh, Estonia is able to declare independence. Russia actually declares independence from the Soviet Union, sort of bizarre, uh, and the and the the tanks turn around and they go home. So they they sort of take advantage of this opportunity of the chaos. But they really it started by telling the truth about their history, and they were and you know it's remarkable they did this by uh, by singing and holding hands. <laughs> you know what was uh, that the, what was that called when they did that? So they call that. they call it the singing revolution uh, singing because. Revolution. Because what ended up happening is um, you had at one point 300,000 Estonians spontaneously show up at the uh, singing grounds, the, the historical singing grounds, and they start singing not love songs to Stalin and, and uh, Lenin, but love songs to their country of Estonia, and also yeah. some hate songs uh, to Lenin uh, and Stalin. Uh, you know, they talk about uh, the 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 ruble crushing them, and it's like stones to. Uh, there's uh, pretty pretty graphic uh, uh, language. They actually say yeah. uh, it's like scabies to your groin and and uh, <laughs> stones to your heart. You know, it's pretty remarkable. Um, wow. But they did it singing. So uh, and so three hundred thousand people 
is one third of the country. Wow. So one third of the country shows up and they start singing. And, you know, the most uh, feared empire in the world essentially gives up Estonia and it's felled by song and holding hands. Uh, nobody could have guessed that, uh, but it's really remarkable. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's, I got to point something out. I think Carrie is probably feeling the same thing that I am right now. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until maybe maybe three or four years ago that I was even aware of the singing revolution. But I remember seeing picture, looking at pictures of this. So I'm like, what yeah. the heck is this? And I did some reading and I thought, holy crap. Well, lo and behold, just a couple short years later, Carrie and I are in a honking revolution with trucks bumper to bumper for hundreds of kilometers <laughs> across the true. country. You know, almost so interlocking bumpers. Wouldn't that have yeah. been a show? Yeah. And of course, I, the situation is different for sure. The number of people and the percentage of population is different for sure. But yeah. you know, these types of things that are historical events that don't happen that often are occurring to some degree in this country of Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Lenin probably never said this, uh, but uh, it's attributed to him um, that there are years when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Yeah. Um, and that, that does seem to be true. Yeah. Is that what you were going to say, Carrie? Were you feeling that too? Well, I, yeah, I was actually going to bring up uh, a couple of different things. Um, you know, for me, the parallels of what you're just talking about, I can, and I'm sure every viewer is is basically saying that could happen in Canada. That could happen in Canada because we've got a leader who is uh, is taking over the the media and uh, Justin Trudeau taking over the media, and he's basically telling everyone that you know he's narcissistic, and uh, and people should be singing praises to him and. And and I, I I even wonder whether or not back in, um, in in old school Russia whether or not whether the media was able to convince people to actually like uh, Stalin and uh, and uh, and Lenin or whether or not um, people just decided that on their own accord. Again, we're totally different times because now we have the propaganda of the internet. We're not getting one paper a day. We're not listening to a radio station and, and that. We get multiple sources. So we're kind of inundated with a bunch of different streams. And there are people that, you know, are, that gravitate towards mainstream media and they just listen to all the praises about Justin Trudeau and how great Canada is. And then we have other people who are more independence-minded. We're, uh, you know, the looking at... Um, uh, individual uh journalists or maybe just uh we'll call it more right-wing uh journalist if you want to call it that but basically comparing the two of them and we can see that yeah oh we love we love trudeau and the other side is we hate trudeau and you know division uh is 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 something that is uh, i think looking at it in the past it's definitely something that you can recognize that that probably happened back then and that's what caused the division between socialism and capitalism and again we're seeing that right in our own eyes we're living the history as it is right? yeah, there's I a divide right. between pharmaism and naturalism yeah. right now yeah well you can you can name anything and then there's going to be a divide to it that's and the problem is, now is that 
people don't even have proper conversations anymore about over the dinner table for as an example yeah. uh, because we've been told not to talk politics don't talk religion especially history don't worry about history let's just talk about things that are happening now yeah. and yet here we are we're we're seeing it play over and over again yeah don't talk about the the thing that most affects our lives while we're while we're on the planet which is politics and don't yeah. talk about the thing that uh, affects our eternity which is religion and also yeah. Don't mention history because you know we might make a good decision on politics and religion in the present. It's, yeah. Well, it's and insane. and if politics were a very minor part of our lives, I think I I could certainly uh, live. I'd be happy to live in that kind of a world. Uh, and I think so. Both ha having said that, that, yeah, I was just going to say. So we say this all the time in Canada. It's between two and three percent of. The population here that actually hold a, a membership card in any political party doesn't matter which one that is so insignificant but in the states and you can probably attest to it it's like probably a third actually i should know what it is but it's ridiculously high 60%. i thought it was 60 percent in the states yeah. and it's like three percent or two percent in canada yeah yeah and, and there, you know there's this political science literature here showing that um increasingly people are not sorted by other factors like i mean this there's a good there's a good aspect here they're not sorted by race as much as they used to be but yeah. they are increasingly sorted by party affiliation so uh you know the uh disturbingly high numbers of people don't want their children to date uh members of the other party <laughs> it's like wow. what's wrong I've with people wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah we can't just live all together, hold hands in kumbaya. We just can't yeah. seem to be doing that anymore. Yeah. You know what? Now, I, I, I got to point this out. You know what the yeah. difference, I think the biggest difference between Canada and the United States for our political engagement is? The United States has been through civil wars. They've had revolutions. That's true. They've That's experienced true. these things where <laughs> uh, people just cannot find common ground on anything, and then they fight about it. Canada has not. We've mm -hmm. just had a cushy existence for the last 150 some odd years, and we've never experienced that before. So nobody cares. Everyone's apathetic. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I think uh, that we've lost in the U.S. is our, our, you know, really the original reason debt of the U.S. was uh, this is a place where religious differences, uh, are, we're going to set them aside. That was kind of, you know, for all our faults, and the U.S. has plenty of faults, that was a unique contribution. Was the idea that uh, look, if the if the Catholics want to go to Maryland and start a colony there, have that. Mm -hmm. it. The Quakers yeah. want to do what they want to do in Pennsylvania. That's awesome. Um, uh, and uh, you know, Protestants will set up in Virginia. Uh, but we're we're the state's going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And that sort of live and let live kind of ethos I do think seeped into the political culture and um, was a, a, a big identifying factor. It's the, the idea that I'm not going to, uh, you have your beliefs, I have my beliefs, and I'm not going to try to change, change it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I do worry that we're kind of losing that, unfortunately. So on that note, the, the title of this webinar is called The Road to Socialism is Paved with Good Intentions. So a lot of the things that um, would would cause Canada to be described as a socialist country are socialized education, socialized healthcare, socialized uh, infrastructure, those types yeah. of things. So yeah. 
if we are to continue to do those things that are necessary in a free and democratic society so that we can peacefully coexist and not leave anybody behind, how do we find a balance between proper, uh, proper socialist, what's the word, um, uh, initiatives to support society without crossing the line into government overreach and tyranny that leads to all mm. sorts of other devastating things that we've seen across history? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I don't think any any one country does it right, but I think it is interesting to pick out, uh, you know, certain aspects of, of what countries do. So I already mentioned one aspect of the um, the Scandinavian model that we should be interested in is the idea of widely shared burdens. Um, the idea that you, you can build a welfare state just by taxing the rich, it's mathematically not possible. Um, and it's, it's also not a very politically stable system. Um, but the way that the Scandinavian countries have done it is by, you know, having um, high marginal tax rates that kick in at relatively low levels. And so if you're among, if you're one of those people that says, I want a bigger social safety net, then I think you need to be willing to also open your, your own wallet and recognize that in the world, in the places that have these, these large safety nets, average people are paying them with, with high VAT taxes and high uh, personal income taxes. Um, I think another a uh, good model is Estonia post uh, uh, socialism. So Estonia, you know, right out of the gate, they had this, uh, again, uh, he who controls the past controls the future. Their first elected uh, prime minister was a historian. Mm -hmm. um, and Mart Lahr was his name. And uh, it was funny, he had um, not read a lot of economics, but as a, as a kid who was a dissident in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, he had heard that um, there was this terrible economist named Milton Friedman from the West. And so uh, since the since the communists told him he was terrible, he thought, I'm going to go read that guy. <laughs> and so he read Milton Friedman and uh, he implemented a number of his ideas as prime minister. And one of them was a flat personal income tax. So Estonia instituted the world's first flat income tax. Yeah. And interestingly enough, a lot of the former Soviet states adopted it. Um, and they have a very innovative um, uh, uh, income tax too. It's it's a business tax that is only paid when the the business actually distributes uh, profits. You, you it's not taxed before that. So and it's got it, there's no double taxation of income. It's very simple. Both of these are relatively low rates. They're twenty percent, uh, yeah. so they're about half of the OECD average, and they yeah. bring in a lot of revenue. Uh, yeah. So both Poland and Estonia were able to actually build much better social safety nets that actually took care of their citizens after so, uh, socialism fell. Their safety nets were terrible under the socialist state, um, yeah. but they actually have decent uh, safety nets now that they have, uh, you know, advanced capitalist societies. Hmm. Interesting. Share the benefit, is, share the burden. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, just as a little bit of an aside, so the the, the, the question about a flat income tax and uh, and uh, I can see, as, especially if you can only get taxed when you're actually making a profit. I don't know if you're aware, but all movies and TV shows that are actually made are done by separate companies 
um, that are owned by separate groups. So say Castle Rock owns something, but an actual movie is usually the name of the title or maybe some play on words. And that's the holding company for that. And the uh, idea is that that company will never make any money. So if you go to an actor or a producer and say, you'll, you'll get 10% of the, uh, the profits on this show sign off, that sounds great. But through creative account counting, that movie will never make any money. So putting that in into uh, a corporate sort of uh, a structure, I can see how the problem would be is we'd have all these shell companies not making any money so that money actually wouldn't flow into the government. So there are yeah. obviously some issues with, with certain things, right? So that, yeah, Terry, that is exactly why, sorry to interrupt you, Matt, but yeah. that's exactly yeah. why I've always been a strong advocate for no income tax, no corporate tax. However, a consumption tax. I, I like the idea if, of if you're buying tax, bread, right? you would not yeah. pay any tax. If you're yeah. buying a Lamborghini and you can afford a Lamborghini, well, you're going to pay a ton of tax because yeah. you're buying something yeah. that's completely yeah. ridiculous. But if yeah. you can do it, then do it and you pay the tax, right? In that yeah. way, no one's hiding from tax. No one's paying too much tax. The people that can't afford to pay tax aren't paying any tax because they're not buying uh, luxurious items. It's, uh, yeah. But nobody seems to want to do it. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. Matt, do you, uh, do you have a state tax that you pay? Yeah. Uh, so in New Mexico, we have a, a gross receipts tax, uh, which is a relatively unusual tax in the States. Um, which but tax? It's, uh, it's called a gross receipts tax. It's kind gross of receipts. a, it's basically a sales tax that is also applied to any business. Um, but then we also have uh, state income taxes. Uh, and we uh, then, of course, have property taxes, which mostly yeah, yeah. fund uh, local government. Yeah. So the similar government loves their taxes. Yeah. yeah. And once you get a tax, you never get rid of it. We uh, in Canada have a goods and services tax and, and we're a harmonized tax depending on where you are, but essentially it's like a, a flat 5%. And then each province, which would be equivalent of your state has their mm -hmm. own, um, their own state tax or provincial tax. And Alberta is the only one that doesn't have uh, a provincial sales tax. And of course, there are people up in arms saying, well, we should do that so that we can save money on this. And versus people like myself anyways, that are like, no, we don't need yet another tax. Uh, you know, and, and then you get the issues where we actually have a, uh, a, a, a city town right on the edge of Saskatchewan, next province over and Alberta, Lloyd Minster. And half of the, half of the town, I guess, in theory should be paying tax and the other half doesn't. I'm not even sure what they actually do up there. I don't think I, either. I don't, I don't know for either sure, Gary, but yeah. I don't think that they pay uh, the PST on the Saskatchewan side of Lloyd Minister because, yeah, that makes because it's such an inequitable business model, right? So that yeah. all yeah. the business would, I, I think, but don't quote Everybody me would that. move over to Alberta. There would be nothing on that side. Right. Yeah. But essentially that's kind of what, uh, you know, different, different models of, uh, of taxation and, and so, again, the idea of why we do any of these webinars and whether or not it's on politics or economics or, or law or uh, anything is to educate our viewers and, uh, and, and better prepare themselves, especially if we want to have a proper discussion at the, at the uh, dining table during Christmas uh, with uh, people that may totally be, you know, we're, no, I like the idea of socialism. That's the end of it. And uh, so this would be a great opportunity to have those conversations with, uh, with I want to meet those people. Cause I'll <laughs> just want... say 
that's oh great. Give me all your stuff, and I'll give you yep. back what you need. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to maybe touch on, Matt? We're at about an hour and twenty minutes. We'll probably go at least another ten more minutes here just to see. Yeah, I think the main thing I just would want to say uh, is kind of back to that. Uh, you know what? What Estonia in particular, but Poland too, what they were yeah. able to accomplish after. Yeah. Uh, so you know. Estonia not only uh, instituted the world's first flat tax, uh, the it um, privatized uh, like mad, uh, and and did it in a, in a very efficient and quick and um, not corrupt way, which is yeah. uh, uh, unique. So you know when you're in a socialist state, it's really difficult for the if the state owns all the means of production to hand over those means to the um, private sector and do it in a way that insiders don't get uh, a fast track or, or uh, any uh, extra benefits, but they, they managed to do it actually pretty well. Uh, they used a system of uh, vouchers uh, where they basically gave biz uh, people, managers and, and employees of the state-owned stores, they gave them a, a little, little vouchers that said, if you want, you, you now own uh, you know, one-tenth of this store. Um, and you can sell, other people can okay. buy it or you can sell it. Uh, and it worked relatively well. Uh, one of the main things that they, they did is if, if you could prove that you had owned the store before, uh, yeah. then you could, uh, um, you could reclaim. So, you know, there's a story of one, one, uh, old woman, um, she and her husband had owned a, a sort of a block on a, on a street and she went into her backyard and dug up a tin can of the deed that she had kept hidden for uh, decades because mm -hmm. after the Soviets took it over and stole her property um, and she uh, reclaimed her, you know, her, her property and the, and the, the state recognized it, the Estonia recognized it. Um, so they deregulated, they made it very easy to start businesses. Um, Estonia, uh, they had all this sort of youth, youthful energy uh, at the time. So the prime minister was 32, uh, the top, the, the, the top three or four leaders in the cabinet were all under 30. Um, and um, they kind of capitalized on that and built a reputation as a very entrepreneurial society. So they instituted the world's first e-government, uh, the first government in the world where you could vote, uh, you could get a passport, you could um, start a business, close a business, all of that could be done online. Uh, mm -hmm. And they sort of reinforced it uh, with government um, restrictions on the government. So the government, um, there's a law that says uh, they, the government cannot ask uh, the same person the same question twice in their lifetime. <laughs> so okay. it's, you know, basically just, oh, wow, look at that. <laughs> that is amazing. That was really, that was really That was because I did this? That was weird. <laughs> Yay. So... Um, you know, they have all these mechanisms that uh, reinforce it. Um, another thing that they did is they they eliminated, and this is really, I have to say this as an economist, this is almost unprecedented in world history. They unilaterally eliminated all tariffs. Um, and wow. Wow. one thing that they did, you know, economists will wax poetic about free trade, and I, I, I will do that myself. Uh, it's, but it's not only beneficial for uh, in and of itself, but that was a down payment on any other reforms because now uh, every business in Estonia had to compete with every other business around the world. And so they couldn't afford to uh, 
saddle those businesses with high tax burdens or high regulatory burdens. It was basically a, a commitment to uh, to freedom. So and it, and it worked, uh, you know, very well. Well, so the the all of those statistics that I was telling you at the beginning, uh, early on about you know the higher infant mortality rate, the lower um, uh, um, lifespan, uh, the lower per capita GDP, all yeah. of that has reversed. So Estonia is now you know one of the freest countries in the world. They have the highest per capita GDP in of any former Soviet state. Um, uh, I think uh, Latvia is, is basically right tied with them, and they are very free as well. Um, they had some of the fastest growth rates of any country in the world. They have more startups per capita than any country in Europe, more unicorn startups. So that's a startup uh, valued over a billion dollars uh, than any other country in the world on a per capita basis. Um, they now live longer. They have they have a lower infant mortality rate than um, in Finland uh, and also than in, in the OECD. Um, they have uh, higher satisfaction levels uh, with their government, with their social safety nets, with their economy than anybody else in Europe. Um, you know, it's a very prosperous uh, society. And I think it's just, a, you know, proof that that freedom really works. Should I look for land in Estonia? Yeah, yeah. You should look for land that you could buy in 1992 when it was nice and cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's right, too. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Chris, do you want to have any last words? I was looking for uh, a couple of the questions. I mean, lots of comments, uh, great, uh, you know, things like, uh, thank you, gentlemen. Once again, we learned history, or once we learn history, we do realize what's uh, being in present day at an accelerated rate. Of course, that is. Um, comments even like this, uh, uh, if the Ukrainian citizens had the right to keep and bear arms, none of this would have happened. Well, I mean, that's that, that may be true. That's very true. And especially, uh, you know, up here in Canada, it's it's legal to own uh, a gun as long as you've got your uh, your pal. What is what does pal actually mean there? Possession and acquisition license. Yeah. So uh, but you can't really use it as ridiculous as that sounds, other than going out to the uh, shooting range or maybe even on your own private property, but uh, you can't use it self-defense, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some differences between uh, uh, Canada and the U.S. for sure. Well, Canada... Well, and, and you guys have bigger bears than we have, uh, at least... Oh, in that's true, too. too. And we so, have uh, white bears, too. Yeah, we do. big polar bears. <laughs> Canada, our system, our method of democracy is very, very critically attached to people um, being involved and being yeah. engaged and using their voices. I mean, the place where we go to talk to the government is called parliament, which means to speak, right? Yeah. Um, we don't have any, there's no mechanisms afforded to us in our constitution to protect ourselves from government, tyrannical otherwise. Uh, we do not have a right to bear arms. We have yeah. no right to form a well-armed militia, none of those things. Our democracy literally hinges on people being informed and being involved in our politics. And they are not. Yeah. And it's uh, it's caused us some problems in this country, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I think we have some lessons to learn. But one of the reasons why I chose to take on this role as the CEO of the CEO of the Alberta Prosperity Project is because I really believe with an effective education campaign and getting this stuff out to people in Alberta, we can start to shift uh, the way people are thinking and their their 
feeling about getting involved in politics because if we don't i mean it can it can only get worse right mm -hmm. so uh yeah. you know that's that's my that's my part in this and why we continue to do these webinars and i mean matt you've been a fantastic guest i really appreciate yeah. the the uh, depth that you've you've gone into some of the historical accounts of socialism across the world and how it could impact us uh, and i looks like from the comments people are really appreciative as well so thank yeah. you very much well, and i'm definitely going to be definitely going to be looking at uh, the realities of socialism.org yeah. and uh and and reading that and and again it's the whole point is that you learn from your own history and if yeah. especially if we can have the parallels of what was going on then to what is going on now and and again, our, our viewers are going to say, hey, that's that's kind of happening right now. I think uh, we might be better off to uh, to know that. And again, use our voices and discuss discuss this far and wide and and let people know that we're not happy. And, you know, getting back to the 300,000 people uh, holding hands there, too, um, figuratively and literally, if we could have 300,000 people in Alberta joining hands or at least being uh you know together on on a certain per particular topic uh that would be amazing right we've we got uh, seven million carrie well, i was going to say we've got 4.4 million uh residents but yeah voting is 1.7 i guess uh or or even more than that i guess but we definitely need we need numbers we need numbers and we need voices and we need people to to stand up and and not just you know they're so busy and I say this over and over again, they're so busy working, taking care of their kids. They come home and they don't want to get involved. They do, they just sit back and they're apathetic and then they'll be the first ones bitching when shit goes sideways. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, the, the other thing that you can take from this history is just the power of ideas. And, yeah. you know, in, I think they they saw the world in a very different way than uh, it seems like you two uh, did or do, yeah. but uh, Marx and Engels, had a view of the world. Yeah, they were, right. you know, they were trying to change hearts and minds and they were very successful in doing it. And, you know, a lot of people suffered as a result of that. You know, it's an incredible uh, his, history making events uh, just because of what people were writing and, and thinking and talking about. And, you know, we have an opportunity and you guys are leading the way in terms of uh, helping people see the world in a different way uh, and, you know, sparking, um, maybe a, a different type of revolution, I would hope. Yeah. You know, you're, you're right about sharing ideas and Carrie, you're right about uh, discussing things. And really, what better place to do those things than uh, at our APP webinar sponsor for this week, which yeah. is the yeah. Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. Share ideas over a fresh brewed Mother Parker's coffee and a homemade cinnamon bun made every morning by yours truly. That is Probably very other delights and goodies that will... Uh, make it so your pants don't fit anymore, but you'll be happier and more well-educated after talking to your friends and neighbors at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. There you go. See what I did there? What a great way to end. That's so smooth, yes. <laughs> Shameless, right? <laughs> All right, with that, I'm going to say goodnight, guys. And uh, again, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, pleasure having you on, and we will definitely be in touch and have you on again for sure, because I, I know you you, you so much knowledge. Thank you so much. Speaking, well, thank about, you guys. speaking of yes. being in touch, how yes. can people get in touch with you? Should they have questions or comments or anything like that? Is there a mechanism for them to contact you? Yeah, yeah. So um, you can go to uh, 
FraserInstitute.org, and you can find my contact info should be there. Um, you, also, of course, check out the uh, Realities of Socialism website. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, uh, I think it's Matt D. Mitchell. Uh, you can you can find me there as well. LinkedIn, okay. Facebook, all of that stuff. I will. And last uh, but not least, I'll, I'll put sorry, all those Gary. links. I'll put all those links on after the video for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. Last but not least, if people want to support the work you're doing, uh, either with a big old thank you or a big old check, where can they do that? Please go to FraserInstitute.org. There you go. There you go. One-stop shop. Let's do that. Okay. Awesome. All right. Thanks, with that, thank you very much. You guys have a great night. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for watching you everybody too. as well. We we do these every Wednesday. And uh, like I said, we're actually going to do a bit of a hiatus for the next three weeks for uh, the Christmas break. We are still posting the videos. We're, we're going to be doing a kind of a best of the webinars for 2023. Chris and I still have to compile exactly what's going on, but these will be happening on Wednesdays anyways. And uh, if you have, if you're just a new watcher here and you haven't watched uh, at least since the beginning of 2023, there are some great episodes and we're going to be launching those and showing those again. So, and, and with you can that, those as well. you can sponsor those as well. Excellent. Great. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night.